Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Just to remind you, last week we launched the newest offering in the Logos Online Classroom, an online course on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Go to LogosBibleStudy.com, view the online classroom, and at checkout, enter coupon code JJR2018 to get 40% off. That's JJR2018 for 40% off Joshua, Judges, and Ruth in the Logos online classroom. Okay, now it's time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Many of you have been with me for years, and some of you for decades, studying Scripture together, verse by verse, Genesis through Revelation. It's really the only way I know how to teach Scripture, verse by verse, all the way through. If, as St. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness, then we have an obligation to study all of Scripture from beginning to end. We have an obligation to understand each genre of literature that comprises scripture. We have an obligation to understand the historical and cultural context of each book of scripture. And we have an obligation, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to internalize scripture, to take it into our minds and hearts, and to make it part of who we are. And that is a great adventure, my friends one of the most rewarding experiences we can have in our entire lives. Now, I've been studying and teaching Scripture for so long now that the characters we meet in Scripture have become real flesh-and-blood people to me, men and women who are as real to me as you are, as real as my own family and friends. The characters of Scripture populate my own internal landscape, and they engage my thoughts and imagination as much, if not more, than the people who are part of my daily life. That's one of the joys of literature, one of the joys of living life within the pages of books. In books, we step beyond the narrow limits of our own lives. In books, we travel in time in geography, and in experience, sharing in the joys, the sorrows, the adventures, the fears, and the hopes of people we would otherwise never meet. In the Iliad, I feel the rage of Achilles and Hector's struggle to prove a worthy son, brother, prince, and husband, although doomed to fall under Achilles' sword. In the Odyssey, I sit around the table at the Phaeacian court and revel in the tall tales of Odysseus, tales that, frankly, strain credulity, but that delight his audience and me nonetheless. In Shakespeare's King Lear, I take the place of the fool at the feet of the half-mad King Lear as he howls into the pouring rain and blasting winds, Blow, winds, and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow. The literary life 
is a rich one indeed. Now, I've been thinking lately about those people I know so well within the pages of Scripture. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Saul, David, Solomon, and the 39 kings of Israel and Judah. <laughs> now, there's a rogues gallery, if ever I saw one. The prophets, the flamboyant Elijah, the quiet Elisha, the thundering prophet Isaiah, the weeping prophet Jeremiah, the truly weird prophet Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets that we so often speed through as though they were passing acquaintances. In the New Testament, Jesus, John the Baptist, the Apostles, St. Paul and Dr. Luke, Paul's traveling companions, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, and a host of others. All of these characters populate the foreground of my experience and imagination. But notice that I didn't mention any women. No, they're there all right. But in the pages of Scripture, at least in my experience, from my limited XY chromosome perspective, they stand somewhat demurely in the background. It's not surprising, I suppose, since all the books of Scripture were written by men from a man's point of view. We even portray God as a man, God the Father, and all three persons of the Trinity are presented to us in grammatically masculine nouns. Well, in the next few podcasts, I'd like to step into the stories of Scripture, stories we know so well, and seek out the women and explore how they might view the events in which they participate. And who better to start with than Eve, the mother of us all? Let's take a look at Eve, beginning in Genesis chapter 2 in the second creation story. And let me read to you. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the earth, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Back then, at the very beginning of creation, which we saw in Genesis chapter 1, each of the seven days of creation. Well, before God formed the man. We read in chapter 2 that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And you know, that's what makes humanity, human beings, so infinitely valuable. When God created all the other creatures, he created by speaking. He said, let there be X, and there was X. But with man, with humanity, God took the dust of the ground, formed it, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We carry within us the very breath of God. 
Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed in it. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, to get our geography, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there too. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth is the Euphrates, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley in Mesopotamia. So the Garden of Eden, somewhere in that region, is a wonderful, perfect place. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So Adam began working the garden. That was his job, to creatively manage what God had given him, the earth that God had given him, to care for it, to nurture it, to be creative with it. And as God watched the man work the garden, <laughs> the man was over trimming the rose bushes, pruning the trees. And the Lord God was off on the side watching. And he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make a partner for him. I always laugh at that because here was Adam, we'll learn that's his name, here was Adam working in the garden, having a grand old time, taking care of things, making sure things were right and proper and, and good and clean and creatively managing this wonderful garden. He was having a fine time. He thought, you know, I'll finish up here and uh, pretty soon I'll go in, have a beer and watch a football game. The Lord God said, this is not good. <laughs> I'll make a helper suitable for him, a partner, one to be his equal. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Notice he doesn't tell the man, name the animals. He brings the animals past to see what the man would call them. You see, God's delighted with this creature, this man that he's made. I remember when my sons were growing up, taking them to the San Diego Zoo in a, in a stroller, and we'd look at the animals. In fact, I, I mentioned, I believe, last week that my son was here and my grandson, Smith. And we took Smith to the San Diego Zoo, and he wanted above all to see the hippo and he was obsessed with the hippo. And all the while we were at the zoo, he said, hippo, hippo. Well, what will the man call these animals? Now for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
All the animals had their mates, but not Adam. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's, not ribs, sides, and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God, not made, built a woman from the side he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Now, there is a wonderful illustration. William Blake, Angel of the Divine Presence, bringing Eve to Adam. It's a watercolor, pen and black ink over graphite, that Blake drew in about 1803. It's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Google it online and look at it. It is a wonderful illustration of God giving the woman to the man. It's almost like a marriage ceremony. Just a wonderful, wonderful drawing. Well, the Lord God built a woman from the side he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And Adam woke up, took one look at her, and broke into poetry. It's the very first time in Scripture we have poetry. He said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha in Hebrew, for she was taken out of man, Ish in Hebrew. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. He makes a pun, and God and Adam laugh. Ha, 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 that was funny. And I can imagine Eve standing going, what's so funny? Well, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God built a woman out of the side he had taken from the man. Matthew Henry, who wrote a multi-volume commentary on all of Scripture, published in 1708, said, he did not make the woman out of the man's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved of him. I think that's wonderful. 1708, Matthew Henry. And that was the relationship they were to have. A man and a woman, partners in life, taken from his side to be equal, from under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's what God intended. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, who do you know who is naked and feels no shame? Well, aside from college freshmen. Babies, of course. This is humanity in its infancy. Now, they're not literally babies, of course. We have to recognize that Genesis 1 through 11, the genre of literature is mythopoeic literature, stories that address the fundamental issues of the human condition. Here, for example, 
How did we get here? And why? And if a good and holy God created us, why is there evil in the world? Well, we could write a long philosophical treatise exploring that, but we have it here in a story. Now, here we are in the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. Humanity in its infancy. And we read in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent, the Hebrew is nachash, the shining one. Who is that? Well, we don't learn until much later, but over in Revelation chapter 20, the very end of our story, in Revelation chapter 20, we read, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The Nachash, the serpent, is not a snake who slithered up to Eve. Rather, the serpent, the ancient serpent, the devil or Satan, the fallen angel Lucifer, most glorious of all the angels. And clearly in this story in Genesis chapter 3, not a snake that one draws back from, but something infinitely superior to Adam and Eve themselves. Now, when we think of the creation story, we move through the seven days of creation, and each of the days moves toward completion and perfection. Now, what's the final act of creation? Well, creating man. No, creating woman. If man is the crown of creation, then woman is the jewel in the crown of creation. They were perfect creatures, given the freedom to choose to love God or not. Because without the freedom to choose to love, it's really not love at all. My golden retriever, Dusty, loved me. He had to. He was a golden retriever. That's what they do. May he rest in peace. Well, back in chapter 3, the serpent, this sly, crafty creature, this glorious creature, said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the tone of voice. Did God really say that? Huh. And why did he come to the woman and not the man? We'll explore that as we go. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, is that what God said? No. Over in chapter 2, the Lord God said in verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will die. Did he say anything about touching it? No. But Eve adds that, and that creates an opening for the Nahash, the snake. 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said, well, God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And with that, Satan leaned against the tree, put his arm around it and said, you won't die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God and presumably like me, a shining one. And you will know good and evil. Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Well, where's Adam during all of this? Oh, look, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. He was standing right there. Satan went for Eve. She was an easier target than Adam. He looked at her, she was stunningly beautiful, and he felt, I can get to her. So he did. And Adam stood by, right beside her, and let it happen. What should Adam have done? Adam should have stepped between the serpent, Nachash, the snake, Satan, and Eve, and said, you want her, buddy? You gotta go through me. That's what he should have done. He was to protect her, and he abdicated his responsibility. He ate of it as well. And what did they eat? An apple from the tree? Well, who knows? There's nothing in the story about an apple. Besides, the problem wasn't an apple on the tree, it was the pear on the ground. <laughs> well, as soon as they ate of it, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and, as it reads in the 1560 Geneva Bible, they made themselves britches. Now then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Notice in the garden, God is in an intimate relationship with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve and God, together in love with one another in an intimate relationship. Well, God knew what happened. The Lord God said to the man, where are you? They were hiding. They were hiding from God. Where are you? <laughs> Reminds me of when my sons were small and they would do something wrong. They would break a lamp or do something they weren't to do and they'd hide behind the couch with their legs and their butts sticking out thinking I couldn't see them. And I'd walk in the room and say, where are you? Just like here. The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Well, of course, here's the apple core lying on the ground at his feet. And the man said, yes, I did and I'm, I'm terribly sorry, I have sinned, please forgive me. No, he didn't. He said, the woman that you put here with me, this is your fault. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. This is all your fault, God. 
And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, oh, I have sinned. No. The woman said, the serpent deceived me. The serpent did it. And I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring, and hers. He, the woman's offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Pause on that for a moment. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Her offspring will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. For centuries, Genesis 3.15 has been read as foreshadowing the coming of one who would solve this issue of sin, resolve it once and for all, the offspring of the woman, Christ. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Well, I have to, I have to imagine, having never given birth myself, but clearly something the size, shape, and weight of a bowling ball leaving your body has got to hurt. That's not what God's talking about. Now you're going to have pain in childbirth. No, she would always have pain in childbirth. But the pain here is a child coming in now to a fallen world and the dangers of that world. It's a great joyful thing for a child to be born, for the mother and father to hold that brand new baby and, and think of the whole future of that child that you want to create and shape for that child. I'll tell you, today you bring a child into the world, it's a pretty dangerous place. So it cuts both ways, the joy of birth, the joy of a child, and the possibility of catastrophe. Your desire will be for your husband. You will want him to love you. And he will use that desire to control you. Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, though through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. I will produce thorns, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. No longer will they be in the Garden of Eden in a perfect environment, protected by God. Now they will be out in the big, wide, mean, and nasty world. And now you can no longer live in the nursery where everything is perfect, where everything is provided. Now you gotta leave home and get a job. You gotta work for a living and it's hard work. And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said to the man, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He's matured. He's grown up. And once we know 
the difference between good and evil, the difference between right and wrong, we are accountable for our choices. In the Garden of Eden, there was no accountability. But now that you've taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with that knowledge comes accountability. And he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. There was a tree of life in the garden. We won't see that tree of life again until the end of Revelation in the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They're evicted from the garden. This perfect life ends. And now it's a life of struggle, a life of sin and death, a tremendous loss. What could Eve have been feeling? It wasn't solely her fault. They were both at fault, but they brought the whole house down on top of their head. And what will the result be? Chapter four, Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden and they raised a little Cain. <laughs> she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Well, two wonderful sons. But as we know, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil and in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions. He brought the best. Cain brought the leftovers to God, Abel brought the best. And Cain was angry and Cain murdered his brother. Again, look at it through a mother's eyes. Eve seeing Cain murder Abel. How, how could she possibly cope with that? And that's the lesson. You know, Cain didn't have to do that. God said in chapter four, verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. With the fall in chapter three, sin entered the world. And we define sin in class as a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. Sin is not an action. Sin is a condition that manifests itself in outward sinful action. And you can fight it. You can master it. But we don't. We don't. We have, it seems after the fall, a genetic proclivity to screw up. And boy, do we ever. And with this, by the time we get to chapter 6, at verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Well, that's the course of sin. 
from Genesis 3 through the beginning of Genesis 6. That fast. Eve. I imagine when we see Eve, she will have embedded in her cheeks tracks of tears. When we see Adam, he will have embedded in his cheeks tracks of tears. They had a marvelous opportunity. But truly, you can't stay in the nursery forever. The Garden of Eden is like the nursery where everything's provided. The temperature's right, the food is right, everything's provided for you. But at some point, you have to go out and get a job. At some point, you have to go out into the world. And once out in the world, there are grave temptations, horrible evils. And we have to make our way through that world in the course of our 70 years or 80 if we're strong. And we learn from Eve to make the right choices. Making the wrong choices leads to catastrophe. Well, we met Eve, the mother of us all. Adam, the father of us all. And we learned that we carry within us the very same traits that they carried, having eaten from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Thank you for being here this week. Uh, look forward to next week, and we'll take a look at another woman in Scripture. I'll leave it be a surprise to you. Okay, see you then. Blessings to you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Go to ScriptureUncovered.com to submit your questions, and Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. And don't forget to check out the Logos Online Classroom and our new course on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Use coupon code JJR2018 for 40% off at checkout. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.